This is Echozoe Radio, episode 45 for January 2012, with guest Alan Schliemann on Islam. Welcome to EchoZoe Radio. I'm your host, Andy Olson, proprietor of EchoZoe.com. Thanks for listening. This is episode 45 for January 2012. And this month, my guest is Alan Schliemann, and our topic of discussion is Islam. Alan is with Stand to Reason, which is Greg Kokel's organization, and is their resident expert on Islam. Our discussion can be broken down into two main sections. The first is on Islam itself, what Muslims believe, and the unique views that define Islam. The second is how Alan goes about sharing his Christian faith with Muslims and presenting the gospel to them. Before we get to my interview with Alan, I'd like to touch on some of the latest news with Echozoe Ministries. We're still waiting to hear back from the IRS on our 501c3 status. However, if you'd like to know what you can do to support Echozoe, please check out echozoe.com support. There are several things listed there that you can do to help Echozoe, such as prayer, recommending the podcast and website to friends, or using our affiliate links when shopping online. EchoZoe also has a small online store with a few products that make great gifts, including professionally produced, shrink-wrapped CDs of the episodes recorded with Dr. James White and Phil Johnson on Sola Gratia and Sola Fide. These are the two most popular episodes thus far and make great gifts for friends and family that don't indulge in podcasting. These are available at their respective pages on the site, which are echozoe.com slash 31 for James White and echozoe.com slash 37 for Phil Johnson. You can also find them both at echozoe.com slash store. Also in the Echozoe online store is CD subscriptions, which are another great gift for those loved ones that don't do podcasting. A subscription gets them a CD of the latest episode every month mailed directly to them. See echozoe.com slash store for details and subscription options. Be sure to check out the show notes for this interview at echozoe.com slash 45 for an outline of the discussion, additional resources, and scriptures referenced. You can find Echozoe on Facebook at facebook.com slash echozoe ministries, all one word, or on Twitter at at echozoe. Sign up for email alerts to be notified when new episodes become available by visiting echozoe.com slash alerts. See echozoe.com slash contact for our postal address or to send me an email. I'd love to get your feedback. I'd also love to get a postcard from you. If you'd like to send one, you can send it to Echozoe Ministries, P.O. Box 27465, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55427. That address is also posted at echozoe.com slash contact. Now, with all of that out of the way, Here's my interview with Alan Schliemann. Welcome, Alan. Uh, great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. So uh, tonight we're going to talk about Islam. We'll start off with a little bit of background. I'd like to ask, you know, you're, I saw on your uh, Standard Reason website that you're ethnically Assyrian. Yeah. Born in Chicago. And your family's originally from Iraq. Has this background given you, like, special insight into Islam? Well, a little bit. I mean, uh, my parents, of course, grew up in the Middle East. They grew up in Baghdad, as well as my most of my aunts and uncles. 
And so because of that and, and living in a Muslim country, they obviously have a lot of experience and understanding about that. Naturally, growing up in a household where they have that understanding, I, I probably have a little bit of an advantage in terms of your average American in terms of understanding Islamic culture as well as uh, Muslims. But, I mean, I wouldn't say that that's made a huge difference. Mostly my expertise in Islam has come from, you know, intentional study or investigation or simply just going and witnessing with Muslims. Sure. So your family is historically Christian then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Assyrians, you know, my people, were actually the first people group as an entire, as an entire nation to accept Christianity uh, in the first first or second century. So wow. it was actually disciples of Thomas that went to the Assyrian people and preached to them, and they eventually converted to Christianity. And so really the Assyrian church is one of the oldest churches, if not the oldest church. So when my parents and my grandparents, who are from Iran, when they um, lived in the Middle East, they were Assyrians, and all my relatives, I've never known any of my relatives to be Muslim. So uh, my Parents and grandparents had a church in Baghdad. They had a private Christian school in Baghdad. And uh, that was allowed to operate without any kind of um, resistance. So um, naturally, when they came to the States and raised me, I was, I was raised as a believer myself. Great. So uh, you just already kind of mentioned that you dug into Islam on your own. Uh, what really led you to do that? Well, I mean, professionally speaking, it was mostly stand to reason had a need for someone to specialize in Islam. And so I was sort of the natural fit, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, here I am, uh, a son of, of parents and family from Iraq. Uh, I already have kind of an understanding. I speak Assyrian. I, I don't know a lot of Arabic, but I, I do know words here and there. And so I was sort of the natural pick to be the person who would then maybe focus on that. And so that's kind of why um, now I've sort of become – you know, STR, Standard Reasons, you know, Islam guy, basically. Sure. So what are the core and unique teachings of Islam? What, what defines their religion and their culture? Well, Islam has what's called uh, the five pillars of Islam, and they also have the five articles of faith. The pillars of Islam are, are sort of the required behaviors. Uh, the five articles of faith are sort of their required beliefs. So in terms of core teachings, it would be the five articles of faith. So there is the unity of God. That's the first one. And that's just simply the idea that God is a, uh, a Unitarian being. He is a, he's not divisible, you know, in the sense of, not, not that it's in Christianity we teach that God is divided into parts, but they reject the notion of the Trinity. And so in, in Islam, their, their God, Allah, is a Unitarian being. He's not divided into a person, uh, into three persons. So that's that's probably the most fundamental core teaching in Islam. And Muslims would say if you if you learn nothing else, at least learn that because that's the, sort of their foundation for everything. In fact, to reject this notion of the unity of God is to commit the most grievous sin in Islam known as the sin of shirk. And that is that is basically the sin of polytheism or the sin of associating anyone with Allah, either, you know, Jesus or the Holy Spirit or something like that. So, so the unity of God, that's the most core teaching in Islam. Then you have four other articles of faith. You have the belief in God's angels. And um, so that's simply that there are angels, angelic beings, kind of like what we believe in Christianity. Uh, although angels in Islam don't have any free will. All they do is administrate God's kingdom. And they actually teach that 
we have two angels that sort of follow us throughout our life and keep track of every good and bad deed we do. And then um, they also have a belief in these angelic-like beings, which we might call demons, but they, they, would, they call them jinn. And jinn, contrary to angels, do have free will. And they were, they're not fallen angels in the sense that they willfully rejected God. But actually, they teach in Islam that Allah created these beings this way. They, he created them with free will, and they're mischievous, and they're evil. And in fact, Satan is a, is a jinn. So this is their notion of, of, of angels and jinn. So the, the two angels thing, is this where we get the, like the cartoonic idea of an, an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other, a devil on the other? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know if that's where we get our sort of cultural belief i i i'm not sure about that that's okay. a good but but that's but you know since since in islam they have this sort of um meritorious meritorious based system of salvation mm-hmm. based on your deeds this is the way sort of allah keeps track of them is with these angels okay you know and then the jinn is this is this in any way related related to genies the the the, the arabic idea of a genie or the the Aladdin and his oh magic yeah, kind yeah, of it thing. could it could be. I mean, jinn are are more of a mischievous type of angelic being. So, um, and maybe <laughs> so maybe that's kind of where they get that whole idea from. Okay, uh, I'm not so much aware of the American cultural notion of these things, whether it's tied to Islam and in what way. But um, I, I know that's sure. logically that's what they believe. Yeah, well, that it may well also predate uh, Islam as well. Yeah, it, it, it could be. It could be. So they have the unity of God, belief in God's angels, belief in God's prophets. That's a third core teaching. So in other words, you got to believe in if you're a Muslim, you have to believe that God has sent prophets to mankind. So um, Adam would be a prophet of Allah. Uh, Noah, Moses, David. Of course, they believe Muhammad is also a prophet of Allah. And um so those, that's a third core teaching. The fourth one is belief in God's books. So they believe that Allah has revealed uh, or has given divine revelation to mankind. And there's four divine revelations that they believe Allah has revealed to mankind. The first is the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. The Psalms, the Gospel, and the Quran. So these are the four divine revelations uh, that are required belief by Muslims. And then uh, the fifth core teaching is the belief in the final judgment. And so you have to believe as a Muslim that at the end of time, there'll be a resurrection where all people will be resurrected and then they'll be judged based on their good deeds and bad deeds. And so all your good deeds and bad deeds will be put on a scale. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll go to heaven. And if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you'll go to hell. And so they, there's no way of having any kind of assurance of salvation because, of course, you can't possibly know uh, what your scale will look like. Uh, and so that's, that's a tough thing for Muslims, and that's actually an, an area that I touch on when I, when I witness to them. But uh, actually, I take that back. There is one way to guarantee salvation, and that is if you die in jihad, fighting in the cause of Allah, then you are guaranteed, guaranteed salvation. Well, that uh, sounds like it's something that would really encourage violence, then. Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, certainly that's a motivation for a lot of mu- for a lot of Muslims who uh, fight for Allah in that sense. But yeah, that that would be it. Mm-hmm. 
So those are the five, but those are the five core teachings, basically. And of course, they have the five pillars. I don't know if you want me to go into that, but sure, yeah. Why don't we? Okay, so the five pillars are the behaviors that are required. So what we just covered are four are, are the five beliefs. The five behaviors are this. The first one is reciting the creed, and that is there is no god but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger, and they believe that. If you just say that and believe it sincerely, you have become a Muslim. So that's sort of your entrance into Islam as well as sort of a, a creed that you would recite routinely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second pillar is daily prayer. The Muslims are required to pray five times a day. Uh, a third pillar in Islam is the fast of Ramadan. And this is a, uh, a month-long fast where um, during the daylight hours they abstain from food and drinks and um, smoking from sex. So they abstain from every, all of that stuff for, during the daylight hours. And it's intended to be a way to commemorate their belief that Muhammad received the Quran through the angel Gabriel from Allah for over a, uh, a 22-year period. Okay. And then uh, the fourth pillar is, is giving alms or what we would call tithing or something. But basically they only have to give 2.5% that goes towards serving – uh, the poor and needy. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth pillar in Islam, is, it was fifth required behavior, is the pilgrimage to Mecca. And so once in the lifetime of a, of a Muslim, they're required to travel to Mecca, Saudi Arabia, and perform, you know, a couple of weeks worth of different uh, rituals, you know. Mm-hmm. And exceptions are made for people who can't afford to go or who are physically unable. But um, otherwise, you're required at least once in your lifetime. If you do it more, it's even better. But um, at least once in a lifetime, they have to do this pilgrimage. Okay. So there's different sects of Islam. We've got Sunni, Shia, etc. What distinguishes these sects from each other, and, and then how do they view each other? Well, if you go to a mosque in the United States, which, which I do routinely, um, and talk to the imams there, the, the head of the mosque, I, I often ask them this question. I'll say, well, what's, you know, first of all, I ask them, you know, are you a Sunni mosque or a Shia mosque? And they typically downplay the difference, at least in the United States. Okay. They they kind of like to say, well, we're all, you know, brothers under the same kind of Islam. And, you know, we don't make a distinction. We don't make a big deal about the differences. Although I don't find that to be the case in Middle Eastern countries. Uh, they, they, they make a pretty big deal about it. Mm-hmm. You know, Sunni, you know, the, the two main camps are Sunni and Shia. And you, you've probably heard a lot about them in the news, especially as the United States has been involved in the war in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Because Iraq is divided almost almost fifty fifty, uh, but probably there's a slight majority of Shia in Iraq, and this split between the Sunni and Shia actually happened fourteen hundred years ago, right when Islam began. So right after Muhammad died, according to Sunnis, he did not appoint a successor to lead the new fledgling Islamic community, okay. and so Sunnis say what needed to be done was they had to elect a new successor to Muhammad. And that successor is called a khalif. And so Sunnis believe that the true successor should be somebody who's elected. And that's actually what ended up happening was the community of leaders in Islam elected a guy named uh, Abu Bakr, who was a close friend and personal advisor to Muhammad. Now, Shias say, no, they shouldn't have elected somebody. Instead, since Allah divinely appointed Muhammad to be the leader of Islam, the next leader should also be a divinely appointed person. 
And so therefore, it should be the through the bloodline of Muhammad should come the next successor. Now, that would, of course, would have been a guy named Ali, who was Muhammad's cousin and actually son-in-law. And so Shia say, no, the successor, the rightful successor, should have been this guy named Ali. And of course, since Sunnis and Shias, or since the people, the, the, the Islamic community at the time after Muhammad died, disagreed on that, they had a, a, a schism, and this is where initially this separation between the Sunnis and Shias began, was within the first you know, 20 or so years after Muhammad died. Sure. And uh, they take this division very, very seriously. And since, in fact, since that initial division, they have been fighting one another, murdering one another for 1,400 years. Wow. I mean, they, they, they not only kill each other, they desecrate one another's tombs, they blow up each other's mosques. I mean, they, they take this stuff very, very seriously. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's, it's not going to stop in the 21st century because the United States has gone in there and, you know, messed around. In fact, if anything, it probably has made things worse. Mm-hmm. But uh, the fighting is not going to begin. It's not going to end, you know, probably in our lifetime. But that's the but that's the main difference. That's how it started, at least. We're going to talk a little bit about your book. I definitely want to mention it before we close. But um, you gave a little story about this uh, rivalry in in Iraq between the Sunnis and Shiites involving your cousin. Yeah, my uh, yeah. So my I still have two cousins today that live in Baghdad. Of course, they're married and they have kids, and so. Um, I, I, in the, in the book, I just mentioned the story where my cousin was walking home from school and he gets, he gets grabbed by these guys and thrown into a car or, or truck and a gun is put to his head and they ask him, and not in English, of course, but they ask him, you know, are you a Sunni or Shia? Mm-hmm. And of course, this kind of illustrates the significance by which these people take this question seriously, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, because they, 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 each one views the other as an apostate, as a false kind of Muslim. And in, a, in, in, in Islam, apostasy is a capital crime. And so if you apostate from the true faith or you begin to corrupt Islam, then you're worthy of death. So my cousin kind of had a 50-50 chance in his mind. He's like, well, if I give the wrong answer, I'm toast. Mm-hmm. Now, what ended up happening was he actually said, look, no, I'm a Christian and I can prove it to you because in, in, in the Iraq, there's a lot of Christian neighborhoods. And so if you live in a certain neighborhood, there's a good chance that you really are either a Sunni or a Shia or a Christian. And so he convinced them that they were he was a Christian. And actually, they ended up letting him go uh, because they just realized, oh, he's a Christian. Oh, a foolish Christian, whatever, you know, ha, 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 you know, get out of our face. So they almost dislike each other more than they would dislike, say, Christians or Jews. Oh, yeah. In some instances, definitely. In fact, they, they'll say to my relatives, they'll say, yeah, you know, we hate Americans. You know, we hate the Westerner, you know, but a Sunni would say, but we hate the Shias even more in some instances. Wow. Because these aren't, these aren't just people who reject Islam. These are people who they believe ought to know better, mm-hmm. but have rejected the true faith. And so that's a, that's a real big deal in Islam. But is there anything, any part of this faith that's really different other than their views of who was appointed a successor to, to Muhammad? Well, yeah, they, they have a different source. They have a different source of authority. And this, this stems from who is the successor. So it all comes back to that issue because in, in Shia Islam, for example, they believe there are 12 divinely appointed imams that proceed from Muhammad. So there was Muhammad, then he had uh, his successor was Ali, and then Ali had two sons named Hassan and Hussein. And you can go down 12, genera- 12 generations down to the 12th Imam. 
And these divinely appointed imams that are in the bloodline represent sources of authority by which theology is derived. And in the Sunni tradition, they reject those divinely appointed imams and they have their own sources of authority, which are based on uh, these what's called hadith, these these oral traditions about what Muhammad said or did and approved of. And so... As a result of this, the Sunni tradition and the, and the Shia tradition have different sources of authority by which they derive their theology, which gives them a different kind of theological bents. Okay. So it, this affects their theology as well. That's, that's another main you know, thing. Okay. They also give, them, give, give each other names, or I should say they, they title their children. They give, the, they give their children different names. So, for example, if you meet a Muslim and his name is something like – or it's got the name Hassan or Hussein – or Ali in it, mm-hmm. there's a good chance that they're a, a Shia because Ali was what they believed to be the true successor to Muhammad. And his kids were named Hassan and Hussein. You might be thinking, by the way, well, Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. And so why has his name got Hussein in it? Well, that's just an exception. Okay. <laughs> most, most of the time, it doesn't work out that way. That just happens to be an oddball exception. But So I've heard of the Hadith. So the Hadith would be a Sunni thing. Well, actually, there's hadith in both Sunni and Shia traditions, but okay. they have a, they have different sets of hadith. And just to clarify, there are different sources of authority in Islam. The Quran is the highest authority. It is, they believe, the literal words of Allah, the literal words of God. Not inspired words of God, the literal words of God that were dictated basically to Muhammad. The hadith is not as authoritative as the Quran, but it's still extremely authoritative. And what it consists of is written traditions of what Muhammad either said, did, or approved of. And so everything he said about war, or marriage, or prayer, or, you know, and anything, it's been categorized into subjects and put into these massive volumes, which anyone can read. And so uh, this hadith gives real practical examples of how to live out the Muslim faith. And a lot of what Sharia law, which is a a phrase that a lot of people might be familiar with, Uh this Islamic law that countries like Iran or Saudi Arabia base their civil laws on, that Sharia law is based on hadith literature. Mm -hmm. So both Shia and Sunni will have have, – Sharia, they'll just be different Sharia then? Yeah, exactly. They're, they'll, they'll try to base their, uh, their hadith on different sources, you know. Okay. Uh, obviously, the 12 imams that are part of the Shia tradition are the sources for that kind of hadith. Mm-hmm. And I've heard a little bit about this, uh, like specifically the 12th imam, especially with uh, Ahmadinejad uh, in Iran. This is a, a major part of their theology. Yeah, exactly. So the the 12 imams that stem from the bloodline of Muhammad, the 12th imam lived in around the 9th century. And according to their tradition, he, he disappeared. He didn't die. He just sort of disappeared and is planning to reappear at the end of the age. In fact, he'll, he's planning to reappear alongside with Jesus, who Shias believe will come along with this 12th imam. They call him the Mahdi. Mm-hmm. And along with Jesus, will defeat the Antichrist, will kill all the pigs, will destroy all the crosses, and will establish Islam throughout the entire planet. And so 
President Ahmadinejad of Iran, of course, believes this and thinks that if he can hasten the return of the Mahdi by creating global instability in the world, which is why many people in the intelligence community are fearful of Iran acquiring nuclear weapons because they believe this would be an effective way for Ahmadinejad or the country of Iran to, you know, perhaps instigate, uh, you know, global fear and mm-hmm. terror and war and whatever. So, and that that would, of course, hasten the return of the Mahdi. Hmm. I, I wanted to move along and ask, do you see um, common misconceptions that Christians have of, of Islam? Y- yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's probably several. I mean, probably the most common one, I'd say. Or I should say that the two most common ones are really opposite sides of the same coin. So the first part of it is that a lot of people view Muslims as all being kind of violent people, mm-hmm. you know, terrorists, you know, out there to kind of get you. And um, I, I, this is not the truth at all. In fact, uh, most Muslims are peaceful people who are not interested in jihad or violence. They just want to kind of have a happy life, go to work, take care of their families and, and live a peaceful life mm-hmm. and aren't in any way interested in, you know, either supporting terror or, you know, engaging it in themselves. Having said that, the other, the flip side of that is that a lot of people then think that Islam then is a peaceful religion, but it's just kind of been hijacked by violent Muslims. And this is sort of the, the, the typical uh, news story that you hear on CNN or Fox News or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Islam's a peaceful religion. It's just been hijacked by violent Muslims. I actually think that the opposite is true. I actually think that Islam is a violent religion that's been hijacked by mostly peaceful Muslims. Meaning, as a, as a religion, as its official teaching, according to the Quran and the Hadith, Islam definitely teaches that violence is permissible condones it and commands it in many instances. Mm-hmm. However, fortunately, most Muslims don't know what the Quran teaches or what the Hadith teach. And so they're just sort of like nominal nominal Muslims. And they, by ignorance, don't follow those sorts of teachings. But is violent jihad a valid Islamic doctrine? Well, I, I answer this in the book, and I think the answer is definitely yes. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because it's taught in the Quran, it's taught in the Hadith, and it's also modeled by Muhammad, which is another source of authority, by the way. Mm-hmm. So although most Muslims don't practice violence, this is in spite of the teachings of the Quran, not yeah, because, uh, because of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, people typically will call Islam a peaceful religion, but they'll also say that uh, Allah and, and Yahweh, um, the God of the Christians and the Jews, are one and the same. Is is this true? Are they one and the same? Um, well, I would say, you, you, you know, in order to answer that question, there's, there's a couple of issues you have to deal with because it's not just a straightforward yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. Um, the first question you got to ask is, well, are both Allah and Yahweh, do they both claim to be the true God? Or do, do both Islam and Christianity claim that their gods are the one true God? And the answer is yes. And the reason is because both in Islam and, and in Christianity, we say that God or the God we worship is the creator of the universe. You know, he's he, he's created the universe. He's separate from his creation. He's transcendent, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, he created the universe, but he's not one with the universe, which would be pantheism. Uh, both religions teach that their God is omnipotent, omniscient. You know, he's all-powerful. He knows all things, all these things. So there's a lot of similar characteristics. Mm-hmm. But there's also significant differences. 
One of them I already mentioned, and that is Allah is Unitarian, whereas Yahweh is Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, three persons, but one, one essence, one nature. In Islam, Allah is transcendent, meaning he's separate from his creation, but he is not immanent. Whereas in Christianity, we believe that God is both transcendent, but he is also immanent, meaning he enters into his creation and makes, him, makes himself known, reveals himself. Mm-hmm. And in Islam, that is not a, a sound belief. They do not believe that Allah is immanent, in which he enters into his creation and relates to his creation, created beings. In fact, in Islam, they teach that Allah is, for the most part, unknown. And it is not the task of humanity to know God. It's rather to simply obey God. Whereas in a Christianity, we say, no, you know, not only is God the creator who's transcendent, but he also wants himself to be known. He is imminent. And he actually dwells humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. And we can kind of actually know him and have a relationship with him. So is he then kind of, uh, is Allah kind of, uh, I don't know how to put this, but maybe to say, mildly deistic in a way uh yeah i would say more so than in christianity yes absolutely he's you know he creates his creatures in his in the universe and in in his beings but he doesn't develop a relationship with them in the way we teach in christianity okay so that's so that's one one element of just simply looking at the characteristics you know mm-hmm. uh certainly both allah and, and yahweh claim to be the one true god that that exists but the significant differences. Now, you could also ask the question this way. You could say, well, do Christians and Muslims then worship the same God? And I would have to say a strong no to this answer because of this one fact, and that is Christians worship Jesus as God. Muslims don't. In fact, to Christians, it's orthodox to worship Jesus But in Islam, it's actually heresy Mm -hmm. for Muslims to worship Jesus. In fact, it commits the most unpardonable sin, the sin of shirk. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we worship the same God. I I don't see how you could say that. We do claim to worship the one true God, but our characterization of that true God is different. and And they certainly don't worship Jesus as God, whereas we do. Sure. And then I think another issue, which is, which is a, a biblical theological issue, and that is the Bible suggests that there is a true way to worship God. You know? So, for example, in John 4, you have Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, mm-hmm. and he says that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the fact that Jesus mentions the, the concept of a true worshiper presupposes that there are false worshipers, even of the true God. Mm-hmm. Right, and you even have James, I think, saying that you know, even the demons believe in the one true God, but obviously that doesn't help the demons in any way. Right. And so the Bible seems to suggest that we have to worship God in His way, and of course, in His way for the last two thousand years has only been through Jesus Christ. Access to the Father, to the one true God, only comes through Christ. And so, if you don't know the Son, you don't know the Father, is what Jesus mentions many times. So I think there's a degree to which, even if there, even if you can make the case that there's only one true God, Allah or Yahweh, you want to just call him the same thing, you still have the problem of approaching the Father the right way, and, and I think that Muslims can't do that given their their theology. Sure. Does that make sense? It does. 
and you've kind of already led into my next question in a way, but every false teaching, whether it be pseudo-Christian cults or different religions entirely, they mischaracterize the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, what does Islam teach about Jesus? Well, they believe, they teach that Jesus is merely a prophet, meaning he's a human being and only a human being. Uh, certainly he was appointed as a prophet, which makes him special, but he is not the Son of God. They don't believe that he's a second person to Trinity, and they definitely reject that he's a divine being. So, uh, in terms of his works, they reject the notion that he died on the cross. In fact, they would find this offensive because being a prophet of a law would mean that if he was to die like a criminal on a cross, that this would be offensive. Why, why would a law allow his, his prophets to die in such a shameful way? And so if Jesus didn't die on the cross, he certainly didn't, wasn't resurrected because there's no need for him to be resurrected if he was never killed on the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then consequently, he couldn't atone for our sins because that was the whole purpose of Jesus dying on the cross. In fact, Muslims reject the whole concept of a substitutionary atonement. Now, so, so in that sense, they definitely reject the person of Christ and his works, uh, you know, compared to the way we would view Jesus and his works. Mm-hmm. But I will say that it's rather surprising what the Quran teaches about Jesus. And I think this is surprising to a lot of Christians and even to a lot of Muslims. And that is the Quran actually teaches that Jesus' birth was announced by angels, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. The Quran teaches that Jesus was sinless. You know, he never committed any wrongdoing. The Quran teaches that Jesus had the power to heal people of, of illnesses and to even raise the dead. The Quran teaches that Jesus was called the Messiah and that after his life on earth, the Quran teaches that Jesus was taken up by God to be in his presence. And as I mentioned uh, uh, when I was talking about the Shias, that Jesus is actually the appointed one to return at the end of time and usher in the end of the age. Hmm. Now, if you contrast that with what the Quran says about Muhammad, it's rather different. The Quran doesn't say anything about Muhammad being having his birth announced by angels. He actually had a normal birth. He wasn't sinless. He didn't have the power to heal. He wasn't called a Messiah. He died a natural death. He's been buried in Saudi Arabia for the last 1,400 years, and he's not the appointed one to return. So even though... The, even though Muslims have this deficient view of Jesus theologically, which can't be under, understated, um, or I guess it can't be overstated, mm-hmm. it's definitely surprising how much the Quran elevates Jesus above above Muhammad in in, in the ways that he's they're described. So, yeah, I think true. I think it, I think it draws an interesting point, which I think can be used in uh, in conversations to Muslims about the gospel. And that's right where I want to swing is uh, get into, um, you talked a little bit about what Islam is and stuff, but I want to get into how do we witness to Muslims. Before we get into specifically how to witness to Muslims and how you engage with Muslims, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about this uh, tactical approach that Standard Reason is is uh, known for. And in the past, I've interviewed both Greg Kogel and Brett Kunkel, also of Standard Reason. And that's a major common thread between them is, is this, this tactical method. And wondering if you could uh, kind of give an introduction or a, kind of a tour of the tactical approach. Yeah, are you referring to the Colombo tactic? 
Yeah, specifically Columbo, but also just overall the the way in which Standard Reason engages with unbelievers. Well, I mean, I'd say that the the one thing that we try to do in in conversations, especially dealing with non-believers, is we try to use questions uh, to advance the conversation or to make a point rather than simply making statements. And so uh, just to give you an example, I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's a Hindu and he was telling me that he's going to be getting married. And so what I did was I said, well, l- let me ask you a question. I said, uh, are you going to have a Hindu wedding or, or a American wedding? And he's like, oh, I'm going to have a Hindu wedding. I said, oh, cool. And so I, I asked him another question. I said, well, uh, is Hinduism something that's important to you or is it just sort of a cultural thing? He's like, no, Hinduism is important to me. I said, oh, cool. I said, so I asked him another question. I said, well, do you believe Hinduism is true? And he said, yeah, I, I think Hinduism is true. So I asked him another question. I said, do you think all religions are true, like Islam, Christianity, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism? Do you think all these religions are true? And he said, yeah, I, I think all religions are basically true. Now, at this point in the conversation, I had used questions to figure out what he believes. And now I came to realize he believed in religious pluralism, which is the idea, of course, that all religions are true, and you can't say that any one particular religion is false. And so then I asked him one final question, because of course, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that, that's not my conviction, and yet I wanted, him, I wanted to talk him out of that idea. And so I asked him another question. I said, well, Raj, I said, what, what would you think of a religion that taught that its main deity, its main object of worship, is a physical being that hovers on the far side of the moon that's the size of a football field and is responsible for controlling the weather patterns on our planet. I said, would you also believe that that religion is also true? And so he thought about it for a moment and then he, put, then he, you know, and then he started to smile and he goes, no, he, goes, I, he said, I, I wouldn't believe that that religion's true. He says, uh, in fact, yeah, I guess I would have to reject this idea that you know, all religions are true. Because I, I, I don't mean that all religions are true, only the ones that seem most plausible or reasonable. And so notice what had happened. I didn't, or I, let me tell you, well, let me tell you what I didn't do. I didn't tell him that he was wrong. I didn't say, Raj, you're mistaken. Religious pluralism is false. I didn't say any of that stuff. Yet I was still able to convince him of the idea that religious pluralism as an idea is mistaken. And the way I did it was just simply by asking questions. In fact, had I said to him, you know what, religious pluralism is false, that's what you're espousing, and let me tell you why. If I had said it that way, it was it would probably far more likely that his defenses would go up and he'd be very resistant to my idea. Shut down the conversation. That's right. But because I was able to kind of use questions to lead him down a certain line of thinking, as he answered the questions in his own mind, the point that I was trying to make, trying to make became far more real and true to him. And so he, was, he, he, he almost readily accepted this notion that religious pluralism is false, even though I never said the term mm-hmm. or, you know, or tried to argue against it. I just used questions. And, and that's, I think, one of the more effective ways that we find that we can make our points, especially in evangelism, is by asking questions, by using them as a tool, as, a, as leverage to communicate the points that we want to make. Mm-hmm. So then – Transitioning in back into Islam, you know, when you go out and you're speaking with Muslims, how do you use that tactical approach and how do those conversations typically go? You know, what's your strategy for disarming them and, and not putting up those walls of defenses? 
Well, actually, with with Muslims, I mean, I have a very straightforward approach to sharing, to communicating and witnessing to Muslims, and that is simply I share the gospel with them like I would any other non-believer. I don't actually use any special technique in terms of what I try to share with them initially. Mm-hmm. I just give the straightforward gospel that I think they need to hear, like like I would anybody else. Now. What ends up happening, however, is when you try to share the gospel from the New Testament, you'll get a very common objection, and that is that you know they're going to say, "Well, you know, we don't believe in the Bible uh, because you know we believe it's corrupted." You know, as I mentioned earlier, they do believe that there are divine revelations from a law, and they do believe the gospels are one of those divine revelations. Mm-hmm. But the reason they reject the gospel that you're going to present to them is because they think the Bible has been corrupted. And so that makes it very difficult to present the gospel or for them to accept it. And you actually end up in a stalemate quite quickly because what happens is they'll say, well, the Bible's corrupted. And you'll say, no, it's not. You know, your Quran is not the word of God. Our Bible is reliable. It's true. Mm-hmm. And of course, they respond by saying, no, the Quran is the word of God. Your Bible's corrupted. And so I, uh, I, I kind of use this tactic, which. I mentioned in the book, and, and this is maybe what you're alluding to, mm-hmm. and that is I leverage their commitment to the Quran uh, in order to help substantiate my claim that the Bible is reliable. And so I don't actually use the typical apologetics approach to defending the reliability of the Bible, which is to look at manuscripts or something like that. Instead, this is what I tell them. I say, look, although Muslims say the Bible is corrupt, the Quran says it's, it's not only the word of God, but also the uncorrupted word of God. And the reason why I can say this is because the logic of what the Quran says about the Bible proves that the Bible is reliable and the word of God. And, and so I, I, I kind of um, express this logic with two points that I believe the, the Quran makes very clearly, and that is this. First of all, the Quran says that the words of God can't be changed or corrupted. And so I'll cite for them a couple of passages in the Quran. And I'll, I'll say, well, what, you know, and I'll ask them, I'll say, well, what does the Quran say in this particular passage? So they'll read it and I'll, and I'll cite maybe two or three surahs, these, uh, which are chapters. I'll cite these passages in the Quran that say that the Quran says that the words of God can't be changed or corrupted. And the second point that Quran makes is that the Bible is an example of the Word of God. And so you can see the logic there. If the Quran says the words of God can't be corrupted, and the Quran also says that the Bible is the Word of God, well, therefore, according to the Quran, the Bible is the Word of God that hasn't been corrupted. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the straightforward logic. And when I present this to a lot of Muslims, they, they see the, the, the logical implications almost immediately. And so they're struck with a dilemma because if their claim that the Bible is corrupt is true, then they put Allah on the horns of a dilemma because either Allah couldn't protect the Bible, which would mean he's inept Mm -hmm. and that he would allow mere mortals to thwart his will and corrupt his heavenly book, or Allah wouldn't protect it which means he'd be immoral because what he does is he commands people to follow what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. So either Allah couldn't protect it or he wouldn't protect it, neither of which the typical Muslim is going to willing to admit. Mm-hmm. 
Now, if it's not true that the Bible is corrupt, as many Muslims claim, well, then the Bible's not corrupt, which is precisely what <laughs> we've been saying all along. Yeah, that's right. So either way, the, the, the Muslim is stuck in a position, in a dilemma. And um, yeah, so that, that's, that's the technique I use to overcome probably the most common objection I run into, and that is that the Bible is corrupt. Mm-hmm. And once you can use this technique to substantiate the reliability of the Bible, well, then, then you have a huge green light to be able to make your case for the gospel from the gospels, because then they can't argue that. The Bible's corrupted anymore. So then how receptive do they end up being to the Bible once you've taken out that defense? And Well, I find their attitude changes dramatically. I mean, either what you have to say, because considering what you have to say, because, of course, now you've removed their biggest objection and their most common objection. And even nominal Muslims who don't take their faith that seriously, they know this objection. That's the first thing that comes off their mouth. Mm-hmm. So either that happens or they stop bringing well they stop bringing up the objection which of course is the most common problem but they also i, I find develop a, a healthier um how should we say a respect for you in fact uh, last year i was invited to speak at a maximum security state prison this is like in southern california right by the border of mexico it's a prison called centinella state prison and i was invited to speak to a protestant group of christians there probably about maybe 80 of them. And um, so I, I went through all the security checkpoints and uh, I went there to meet the, the chaplain. And he said, hey, we're looking forward to your presentation this afternoon. We'd like you to speak on Islam and how to reach Muslims because there's a lot of Muslims here in, in prison that these Christians are friends with. And, you know, we want to witness to them. I said, great. So I gave them my handout. It was just like a little overview of what I was going to teach. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that the handout on Islam that I was going to teach on, I gave to a Muslim, uh, one of the Muslim inmates. Now, I didn't know he was a Muslim at the time, but he was the one who was delegated to go and make photocopies for the afternoon's talk. Now, of course, as he's walking to, to photocopy my notes, he looks at the notes and notices, oh, wait a minute, this Christian guy is going to speak on Islam. So guess what he does? He tells all his Muslim friends. Mm-hmm. And so that afternoon when I when I started to prepare to speak on Islam and all the Christians started to pour into the room, all these Muslims came in after him because of course they were like, you know, <laughs> they wanted to hear what I was going to say too. Mm-hmm. So I go ahead and I present the same case that the Quran teaches that the Bible is the word of God and that it's the uncorrupted word of God. And at the end of the presentation, of course, all the Christians turn around and look at the Muslims and say, okay, well, what do you think? <laughs> and so finally a Muslim raises his hand and says, Okay, you know what? We've never heard that before, but we have to admit what you're saying is right. And then another Muslim raises his hand and says, yeah, I have to agree with you. The Quran does not say that the Bible is corrupted. And pretty soon all the Muslims agreed with me on, on basically my central thesis. They conceded the point. In fact, at one point, one of the Muslims raises his hand and says, no, this can't be true. And he tries to cite a surah in the Quran that says that the Bible is corrupted. But guess who comes to my defense? The other Muslims. The other Muslims, yeah. They said, no, 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 brother, sit down. That's not right. The Quran does not say the Bible is corrupted. And so here was this opportunity where all these Christians got to see the effectiveness of this tactic, which is to leverage the Quran, which is the highest authority in Islam, towards our own point to make our case. 
And that's why this, uh, uh, this technique works so effectively is because the Muslims have to agree with what the Quran says. They can't reject it. And so if, it, if it is shown that it says something, they have to accept it. And this goes a long way towards making the case that the Bible is reliable and that they can trust it. And of course, once that's established, it becomes much, much easier then to present the gospel from the Bible. Great. All of the stuff that we've talked about is, uh, for the most part, most of the stuff that we've talked about is uh, covered in your book, uh, which I grabbed. Actually, got a really good deal on it. Stand to Reason has it on the website. I grabbed a PDF of it for $2.50. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think if you buy the book in print, it might be about $6, but even that, you can buy the PDF version, yeah, which is only like, yeah, I guess it's a couple dollars. Yeah, it was it was great. And I threw it on the iPad and can read it as I'm getting my kids to sleep at night. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Made, made for great uh, podcast prep. But, uh, good, good. I'm glad. But I wanted to mention that and give people a chance to check out the book. And uh, It's called The Ambassador's Guide to Islam. Yeah, that's right. You can get it, I guess, uh, at our website, str.org. Mm-hmm. I'll put a yeah, there's, a, there's an online store there that you can get some of our resources. And I'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes. But that's all the questions I had, and I, but I, I don't want to quite close yet. I'd like to you know, ask, is there anything else that you'd really like to cover, uh, anything I might have missed on Islam or witnessing to Muslims that, that might be important? Um, no. I, I, the only thing I'd say well, is, is just simply that Muslims are very easy people to share your faith with because they come from a culture where it's encouraged to talk about faith and religion. And um, I think I mentioned this story in, in the book as well, but when I first started witnessing the Muslims, I remember going up to two Muslim men and asking them, I said to them, I was, they were like walking up into a restaurant and I just interrupted them as they were walking in there. And I said, excuse me, I go, are you guys Muslims? And they said, yeah. And I said, hey, you know what? I said, I'm a Christian. I said, would you be interested in talking about God and the Bible and Jesus and religion? And they looked at me and they said, sure, we'd love to. Come on in, <laughs> sit down with us. You know, now just imagine if you walk up to your average American on the street and ask the same question, what they're going to say to you. They're going to look you know, at they, you funny. Like, yeah, that's right. They'd be like, get lost, loser. You know, <laughs> get away from it. We don't want to talk about religion with you. Mm-hmm. But, but with Muslims, it's, it's the opposite. They love it. It's like part of their culture. They love to debate and to dialogue and to, you know, you know, talk about these things. It's like, it's so easy. It's effortless. It's like trying to start a conversation with an American about sports, you know, it's mm-hmm. like just say their favorite team and you're in, you're in a conversation instantly, mm-hmm. you know, and in the same way with Muslims, it's like just, just mention Jesus and the Bible and God and religion. And it's like, boom, you're in a conversation, no problem. So it's, it provides an excellent opportunity, not just to witness to them, but even to practice for that matter, to get a good sense for how, you know, confident you are about your own your own convictions you know mm-hmm. so I, I encourage people if you know of any muslims you know whether it's online or or just you have friends in the neighborhood or maybe a family member or something don't don't be afraid to bring it up with them because they'll they'll probably be very open to talking about it. a lot of muslims just love it well, that's a good point because we're ingrained as americans that it, it's it's difficult to talk about matters of faith with other people because we're so used to talking to agnostics or, or whatnot. Yeah, people. most Americans are just very apathetic about religion. But They say that the two things that you never talk about unless you want to start a fight with a stranger is don't ever talk about politics or religion. 
And so that's kind of ingrained into our American culture. And so it's good to know that with Muslims that it's really not the case, that it's okay to approach that subject with them and have a, a conversation that can be enjoyable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they would love it. Um, I, You know, the one thing with regards to politics with them, although they love to talk about it, you know, a lot of them will start bringing up the issue of Israel and, and the, you know, that whole, you know, Palestinian-Israeli conflict thing. And, uh, you know, I try to st- kind of stay away from that because it usually doesn't lead to anywhere uh, talking about the gospel very much. And so, you know, I don't – I'm not as interested in talking about that with them. So I'll, I try to steer clear of it even though they they love to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But that's that's just a tip. <laughs> well, thanks. Avoid thanks. it because well, you start talking about that, and they just they just start going, you know, off on that subject. So, so I um, I was going to ask you about resources. Obviously, your book, but what else could you recommend that people could uh, get into if they want to learn more about Islam or, or uh, witnessing to Muslims? Yeah, well, there's a, a couple of things. Um, Norman Geiser and Abdul Abdul Salib, I think, is the co-author's name has a book called Answering Islam, which is a good book if you want a really thorough reference book on all the apologetic arguments. Uh, but it's a pretty big book, and it covers a lot of detail. Um, but if you want just a good overview of a general nature and a kind of introduction, um, besides my book, I recommend uh, George Husney's book. Um, in fact, let me just make sure I, I get the name of the book correctly. Um, I think it's called Engaging Islam. Yeah, it's called uh, Engaging Islam. And George is, is a, um, a Lebanese guy I know pretty well. I, I see him regularly. And he's um, done a lot of translation work uh, for Bibles and Arabic and stuff. So um, this guy knows his stuff. He's you know lived in the Middle East for many years. And uh, I, I just appreciate sort of the kind of casual approach he takes to Understanding Islam and Reaching Muslims. So that, that might be a good book, Engaging Islam by Georges Husney, H-O-U-S-S-N-E-Y. Thanks. I'll put that in the show notes. And- yeah, it's available on Amazon. We don't sell it at STR, but uh, Amazon sells it, and I'm not sure where else. But Well, thanks so much for taking some time this uh, Tuesday evening and, and talking to me about uh, Islam. It's been a very enjoyable conversation and pleasure to have you. Yeah, well, thanks, Andy. Thanks for inviting me on the show. That wraps up episode 45. Thanks again for listening. Remember to check out echozoe.com slash 45 for show notes, including an outline of what you just heard, as well as scriptures referenced and additional resources. Thanks again for listening, and Lord willing, I'll be back in February for another episode of Echo Zoe Radio.